0: Hey, uh, we are in Ephesians chapter 2, which, praise God, we're in another chapter. At this pace, we'll be in heaven when we finish (laughs) Ephesians. Chapter 2, we're going to look at the first three verses. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn there. If you've got an application, you might want to find it. And uh, if you don't have that, we'll even put the verses up for you um, on the screen. I uh, confess that I am a seldom movie watcher, to go to the theaters, by the way, but I have really one that I go for, and that would be anything with a happy ending. I'm a happy ending guy. I don't like things hanging out there and misery. I like the hero to win. I like people to go home happy. That's kind of probably a a weird part of me. But now, that would explain why, uh, among the obvious reasons, why Ephesians has been such a kick so far. I mean, chapter 1, are you kidding me, right? Right? He just overwhelms us with everything that's ours in Christ, just nonstop. We've had ten weeks of this. You should be, uh, you should be you know, giddy with joy for this. But let me just remind you, since you're not looking that giddy this morning, of uh, what's ours so far. This is what we've said, and these are these are phrases right out of the text. This is what we've looked at. Paul tells us that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. They've been that we've been chosen by God. That we're loved and predestined to be His very children that we're redeemed by his blood, forgiven of our sins. We've received a lavish grace of God. We've obtained an inheritance in the kingdom. We have a hope in Christ. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've had the eyes of our hearts enlightened, and we are the possession of God himself. Last week, we looked at the fact that we have this immeasurably great power in us through Christ, a power that we said overcomes the things that look like at times control us that overcomes, it looks like at times, things that draw us or things that look like they're in the way. God's power is greater than all the mess out there trying to do us in because God has put all things under the feet of Jesus our Savior, amen? Everything out there in us, he's over. And we are, as Paul finished last week, the expression of the fullness of him. Now that is awesome, right? (laughs) I'll wait (laughs) till the coffee kicks in. You should have been jumping up and down with that list right there. Chapter one's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous how wonderful it is. That is really good news. And there, if you wanna like happy stories, there is none better than that. If you remember last week, if you were here, remember the challenge, come every week, get all of what Ephesians is saying. We we diverted our attention over to Paul's writings to the church of Philippi in chapter 3 of Philippians, where he is talking about the same power, and he talks like pragmatically of how he goes and pursues this reality in his life. And we reminded you of what he said, that we are to believe God's plan for why he took hold of us, that he took hold of you to shape you in the image of Jesus. So you got to believe that he's doing something. And all the circumstances in your life, all the stories in your life, good, bad, and things that you would at least define that way, God is using to shape us. We've got to believe that. We've got to admit that, that we aren't finished, that we're far from finished, that in fact finished won't happen until glory, but in the meantime, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, be undone by the tension and the timing of God as he grows us in the image of Christ. It's a work that won't be completed, but is being completed. Um, you also remember that Paul in his... Passion and tenacity described the mission that he was on. My mission, my one focus is to gain the prize. The prize, I want to be with Christ and I want to be like Christ. I want this thing completed in me. And so he made it like a singular focus, one thing I do. And so we kind of put the challenge out to the church to focus. Focus on Christ's likeness being shaped in us. And I kind of added this one that Paul says was that Paul said, I forget what lies behind and I press on. And I encouraged you or exhorted you to do a better job at forgetting. Because the church, which is sad, the world loves to uh, draw its identity from everything but Christ. So we spend more time talking about what we did or what was done to us than what Christ has done for us. And so we're shaping our identity in other ways. And so Paul just says, hey, listen, I forget all the stuff as I press forward Uh, to know Christ. Now I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that idea here today because it's going to sound a little schizophrenic for Paul what he says in in Ephesians chapter 2. So um, I just want to know that you heard all that we've said so far (laughs) because if you didn't hear it today's going to be a bummer. (laughs) If you've read ahead you've read the first three verses of chapter 2 and Paul talks about sin And I don't know if it's popular to stand up in a service and preach nothing but sin, and that we're sinners for a half an hour with no relief, but we're going to do it. I don't know what else to do. There's a butt God coming, and Tyler gets to do that next week, cherry picker. He gets to do the happy stuff. Um, But I'm going to deal with the sin in fact, some have said about uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that it is a microcosm. It's a small little summary of the very first three chapters of Romans. And if you've studied Romans, the first three chapters of Romans buries us under the weight of God's condemnation because of our condition, sinful condition. In fact, if you just looked at the subtitles in, in Romans, you'll, hear th- you'll see things like God's wrath against sinners, God's judgment against sinners, and everyone's a sinner, I'm glad there's chapters four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, because if it ended at three, we're done. So you have to be ready. You have to prepare yourself. You have to kind of pull up your bootstraps and get ready to handle the day because we're going to look at our condition without Christ as Paul is doing here. So let's read it, and uh, we're going to ask for help in it. So let's, let's read the first three verses. Brace yourself. And you were dead In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, just to respect what we ended with last week, I'm certain some of you might have a question. And it would sound something like this. Okay, wait a minute. You told us, almost when you finished last week, to do what Paul did, forget what lies behind. Why is Paul bringing up what we were? That seems so weird. Am I supposed to forget or am I supposed to remember? What am I supposed to do with this understanding? Well, first of all, you need to understand that there's a big difference between Forgetting what lies behind of Philippians 3 and remembering our condition of Ephesians 2. Big difference. Because forgetting what lies behind, Paul's referring to specifics. He's talking about sins, he's talking about memories of actions that he has done and actions done against him. He's talking about the stories. You know the stories that haunt you, that Satan uses to leverage against you and tell you something's, something else is true, that gospel isn't true, that God's gonna change his mind, that after all, after what you've done, he, you deserve something else other than grace and all those stories that is used against us. Paul says, I forget that I used to condemn the church. I forget that I gave approval to the murder of Christians. I forget what I did, but I remember who I was. Does that make sense? In... in uh, Ephesians 2, Paul is talking about our former condition of the heart as the very first example of the immeasurably great power that Christ has given us. Such a great power that he can raise dead people. So if you're going through order of this text, Paul has made this statement, we have this immeasurably great power in Christ. Exhibit A, he made me alive. That's why this is here. That's why three verses are kind of like an island of remembrance of bad things. It's because of his power that raised me to new life and that's where he's going. So church, just some obvious questions. Do you really want to believe his power is great that's working in you? Yes, is the answer, I'll help you this morning. Then you have to look at what you were. Not in the specifics, not in the details, but in the condition. Make sense? Let me give you another reason why we go back to look at the condition of our heart, because in order to truly worship God and experience the joy that Peter says is indescribable or unspeakable and full of glory, is to see how far the gospel reach down to get you. You really want to worship him? Then get a good view of yourself without him, and you'll worship him. If you really want to know that, then you need to know what God overcame to save you, In other words, it's not the details we consider. It's the cause of the details that we consider. I was talking to Neil this week, and he had a good line for it. He said, because the devil's in the details. Isn't that true? He is. He takes the details, and he condemns you with them. He haunts you with them. He keeps you distracted. So we worship God by remembering what our condition was. I'll give you one last one. If we're really going to walk on the humility that Scripture's command for the church to walk, then I don't know anything better than a good long dose of what I was without Christ. Because what it says, what it screams at us, church, when we look at our condition before Jesus, I did nothing for this. I could do nothing for this. I was not even present and I would have nothing without him. That's what it leaves us. It creates this sense of of worship and it creates this sense of humility in us. So let me encourage us before we dig in that as much as this passage will feel somewhat like a bummer to you to spend an entire Sunday just looking at our former condition of depravity, I'm going to tell you it's a good exercise. I don't want you to, uh, I don't want you to get distracted because it's not popular. And I don't want you to look away. I want you to look at it. I want you to spend at least a half an hour that we have together with three verses that we're looking at to stare down what you used to be without Jesus, as Paul is doing here. Because the reason behind the sacrifice of Christ are these three verses. The reason why we call it good news is because this was true. Amen? So that's why we want to look at it together. Um, let, me, let me pray for us, and then we'll... Uh, We'll unpack it. Father God, I do pray for your help right now. It isn't popular in our own hearts to consider what we were. It's certainly not popular in our culture to spend an entire Sunday talking about sin and judgment and wrath and depravity. None of those words are fun, but they're true. And what makes them worth looking at Is that the gospel says a better word? The gospel overcame. Jesus, the Savior, rescued our dead hearts. So when it's all said and done, we'll look at it and we will worship you even more. We pray. In Christ's name, amen. This isn't a complicated passage, church. In fact, if all you wanted to do was understand what he's saying, all you need is the first four words of verse one. And you were dead. That's what he's saying. Everything else is an explanation. And I understand that you might go, well, that's, I need a little help. I need to unpack the meaning of dead, how dead is dead. What does dead mean, really? And so that's what we want to do this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, the past tense of what he says. You were dead, verse 2, in which you once walked. This is a former condition. In other words, church, this is not us anymore. If you've come to Jesus by faith alone, in Christ alone, this isn't you anymore. We are not any longer dead in our sins. It is, uh, it is just like us, though, to go through an exercise like Paul is doing here, recalling, I've heard some of you say it, i heard most of us say it, when we get done looking at grace really intently, I hear it from time to time from people. Why would God? I mean, that's sort of the... The teaser question, like when you really look at the grace of God, everyone says, why me? Right? Well, you've just basically done a tutorial of this three verses. You've, in this brief second, looked back at what you were without Christ, and you say, why me? I know me. I know where me went. I know what me did. I know what I want to do. Why, why did he save me? What Paul is doing here is what we do. He shines the light on the amazing grace of God, and he looks at this grace of God through the lens of his broken condition without Jesus. Nothing makes it shine brighter than that prism, right? Nothing makes it greater. And by the way, if you were listening to those three verses, that condition was really, really bad And so what Paul does is pause here in this wonderful description of all that is ours in Christ for a brief moment to tell us about our dead condition that Christ found us in. Three verses, let me make three observations. If we just want to outline it pretty easy, talking about this deadness. Let's let's talk about what dead is. Let's talk about what dead does. And let's talk about what dead deserves, okay? Because that's what Paul does in these three simple verses. First of all, Paul says, we are dead. What does that mean? You might have heard this before or even remember this particular passage that Paul uh, writes in Romans 3. He says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm 56. I have been doing ministry a long time. I have yet to discover a single person who says, I am the exemption to that. I have not sinned. Now, they might be out there, but I would say they're nuts. But I have never met anybody who actually verbalized it or declared themselves to be free of sin. Okay? Everyone I know admits it. But Paul's point here in Romans 3 is not only that we do sin, but we continually fall short of God's expectations and what God deserves. He expects perfection and holiness. I fall short of his holy standard. That's what he's saying. I can't get there. Theologians call it this condition of total depravity. Now, in order to define that, I've got to tell you what it's not, because some people hear those words and go, wait, that's a little bit too extreme, so let me tell you what it isn't. It isn't that we are as bad as we could possibly be. In fact, one writer said this is a definition of this condition of our dead heart, is that man's natural condition, apart from any grace that God exerts to restrain us or reform us, is this dead condition. That's what we are. It is basically our nature without God's help in constant sin. This is R.C. Sproul talking about this idea or this truth of total depravity. He says, total depravity means radical corruption. I think that really helps to understand what he's talking about. We must be careful to note the difference between total depravity and utter depravity. To be utterly depraved is to be as wicked as one could possibly be. Hitler was extremely depraved, but he could have been worse than he was. I'm a sinner, yet I could sin more often and more severely than I actually do. I'm not utterly depraved, but I am totally depraved. For total depravity means that I am, I and everyone else are depraved and corrupt in the totality of our being. There is no part of us that is left untouched by sin. Our minds, our wills, our bodies are affected by evil. We speak sinful words, we do sinful deeds, we have impure thoughts. Even our bodies suffer the ravages of sin, totally depraved. No part of us that's unaffected by it. John Piper has a great line that he describes just so that we're clear about deadness. He says that we, are, we have to understand that we're in a morgue, not in the doghouse with God. That sticks, right? Some would have us believe that the problem is, isn't really that bad. It's bad when you can't watch the news without saying it's bad, but it's not that bad. In the morgue, I'm not certain about that, some would suggest that Paul doesn't mean dead, like totally dead. Some would suggest that dead is a version of sin, but it isn't inability. Yeah, sin is a problem. Makes us guilty. Makes me miserable, clearly, because everything I do, I hate. I need to be forgiven, and I need a Savior. I, I'm willing to admit all that. It's all true, but I just need a little help. The reason we need a Savior isn't because we're in trouble, church. Church. It's because we're dead. Told you this would be a lot of fun today. If we were in trouble, we could do something. We would do something. We'd uh, say we're sorry. We'd change our behaviors. We'd make plans. We'd fix stuff. We'd try to build a pile of good things that God would be obligated to, right? We would do those things. That's called religion. But what do you do if you're dead? What do you, if you, what do you do if you actually believe what the Bible says about your condition? By the way, Paul doesn't just say it here. It's over and over again in the scriptures, dead in our transgressions and sin. The Bible clearly says that. And the last time I checked, dead people don't do anything. They don't see, they don't hear, they don't act anyway. They can't perceive Dead people have no life. And beyond the accusation that Paul didn't really mean it, Paul didn't choose a poor illustration. He's making a point. He's trying to talk about a precise description of our condition without Jesus. Dead and unresponsive. That is our condition. Let me just give you some selective scriptures as we journey through how dead is dead. You want to know what dead is? Here's what dead is. Dead is this. We are dead by nature. Ephesians 2, two phrases in verses 2 and verse 3 that Paul uses here. He describes us as sons of disobedience and and children of wrath. In other words, it's our spiritual DNA. It's in our spiritual genes. We're born in that condition. We sin because we're sinners, not the other way around. We don't become sinners because we sin. We can't help ourselves. That's just what we're going to do. We're dead by nature. We're dead from birth. David says this in Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. My granddaughter came over yesterday. Well, she came with her father. But, but she was in the house. So far, I have not perceived any sin. Just saying. She's cute as a button. I mean, seriously cute. But I know it's there. I know it's there. And here's why. Because she, like I, like you, have inherited a sinful condition, a dead condition. Paul talks about it in Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all of sin. We got it a long time ago. Great, 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 great grandpa, Adam, rebelled against God, and everyone born since has been born with this inclination, born in sin, this nature to war with God. What is dead? We're dead by nature, we're dead by birth, everything we do is dead. According to scriptures, Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes in chapter seven, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Not one. Isaiah 64, you've heard me say this many times prophet Isaiah says our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. The best you can do doesn't come up to the standard of God. Everything we do is dead. Let me give you another particular. Our deadness expresses itself as hostility towards God. Romans, the first half of Romans 8 verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. Some would like to tell you or pretend that they're indifferent to God. I don't even care. I don't even consider him. I'm just in the middle. I'm neutral. No, you're not. According to the scriptures, your deadness is at war, at enmity with God, hostile to God. And it shows itself every time God tries to intersect your life with truth and absolutes. No, you want what you want. You're at war with God. Give me another. We can't even submit to him. That's how dead we are. That passage in Romans 8 goes on to say, not only is the mind governed by the flesh hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It can't even tap out. That's how dead it is. It can't come to the end of itself and say, okay, I give up. The dead heart is at war, stuck in a condition of unresponsiveness to God. That's how dead we are. We can't submit to God. Here's another one. We don't seek God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on mankind to see if there's any who understands, any who seeks God. And here's what he concludes, all have turned away, all have become corrupt, there's no one who does good, not even one. And Paul takes that theme in Romans 3, and he buries us. There is no one who understands, and there is no one who seeks God. That is our dead heart condition, every person who's ever been born. Jesus said in John 8 that we are slaves to sin. Jesus replied, truly, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, you're chained to sin, you can't help yourself to sin. That's where we are, you don't have options. Another option here, we don't accept the things of God because we can't even understand them because they're not rational to our dead minds. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, the person without the spirit, without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God but considers them foolishness and can't understand them because they're discerned only to the Spirit. So you've had this happen, right? I've had this happen. I sat as a pastor's kid through church services that would bury most people three times a week my whole first 20 years of my life and I heard nothing. Perceive nothing. Believe nothing. To joke to people who don't have help. Dead people can't respond can't understand let me give you one more because i think we'll leave if i keep going even our virtuous acts are sinful if not done for and because of god paul says in romans chapter 14 everything that does not come from faith is sin holy cow everything come on there's good out there right i mean there's good out there right well let me tell you no that's not true I'm going to read to you a quote from Piper and an illustration that he uses that makes the point more clear. Not relying on God in any action or thought takes power and glory to ourselves, and that is sin, even if the external deed itself accords with the will of God. Example. Suppose you're a father of a teenage son. You remind him to wash the car before he uses it to take his friends to the basketball game. He had earlier agreed to do that, But he gets angry and says he doesn't want to. So you gently but firmly remind him of the promise and say that's what you expect. He resists. You say, Well, if you're going to use the car tonight, that's what you agreed to. He storms out of the room angry. And later you see him washing the car. But he's not doing it out of love for you or out of Christ's honoring desire to honor his Father. He wants to go to the game with his friends. That's what constrains his obedience. I put obedience in quotes because it's only external. His heart is wrong. This is what I mean when I say all human virtue is depraved if it's not from the heart of love for the Heavenly Father, even if the behavior conforms to biblical norms. Do you understand? The terrible condition of men's hearts will never be recognized by people who assess it only by its relation to other men. Your son will drive his friends to the ballgame, and that is kindness, and they will experience the benefit of that. So the evil of our actions can never be measured merely by the harm they do to other humans. Romans 14 makes plain that depravity is our condition in relation to God primarily and only secondarily in relation to to man. Unless we start here, we will never grasp the totality of our natural depravity. You, You can look around and bless a person, but if you bless a person for anything other than the glory of God, the scriptures, Paul says, without faith it's sin. The condition of the heart is so jacked up, it's hard to define. Jacked up is a theological term for total depravity. Feel free to use that. That's what dead is. Let me take you through this journey. Now let's look at what dead does, because Paul gives it to us in these few verses. Verses 2 and 3. I'm gonna read uh, verse one as well, just to get us in context. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, number one, following the prince of the power of the year, number two, the spirit that's not work in the sons of disobedience, number three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath. Paul says it really plainly right here in these few verses that the dead heart follows three things. You wanna see what dead does? Here's what it does. It it follows the world, it follows the devil, and it follows its flesh. It follows the world. The word world is used over 180 sometimes in the epistles. And almost every single time it's used, it's talking about the evil age that we live in. And if you want to know what the evil age is, it's the world system that sets us up in opposition to God and the rule of God, and the worship of God. It's a system that denies God, ignores God, is indifferent to God, at war with God. Got it? So that's how Paul uses this word describing the evil age. I am not telling you something you don't know. You you know that. That's kind of ringing true. But if you want to see how deeply it affects us, then you have to understand that this world evil system doesn't present itself as an evil system that will destroy you. It sells itself as is buying into happiness or joy or purpose or success or power or meaning or whatever, right? The world system opposed to the system of God says make much of yourself. And here's what happens before Christ does anything to my dead heart is I think that makes sense. The world offers me something. The world offers me some kind of purpose in life, some kind of meaning in this life. It's after all how you get ahead in that system. And Paul just simply says to the church, remember when you were outside looking in? Remember your dead heart? Here's what dead heart does. It chases after the world, everything it values, everything it cares about. The dead are dominated by the world. We follow it like like cows who have rings in their nose. We can't help ourselves. It's the only answer to life, so we go. He adds one more thing. The spiritually dead also follow the devil. He calls him here the prince of the power of the air. Jesus says that he's the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians, Paul also calls him the god of this age. Either way, he's really, really good at bad, this devil. Just to give you a few thoughts, this prince of the power of the air, he plans and he manipulates. He mixes just enough truth with lies to con every single person. He masquerades as light. He is the liar and the deceiver. He's a liar that says, go get it, it's worth it. And then he comes back and says, how could you? He is the liar and he's the deceiver. He multiplies hopelessness in the hearts of people and he prevents people from seeing the gospel. I can't perceive the good news. I can't perceive my need and nor do I recognize God. I just run from the whole thing and he clouds our minds. And he provides an endless list of substitutes that promise but never deliver. Here. You don't need him. Here. Be happy. Get somebody else. Get something else. Try something else. Paul says we used to follow him as he worked even more unbelief and sin into our lives. That's what dead does. Yes, he actually offers us one other thing that dead does. He says we follow our flesh. In fact, the words that Paul uses in verse three is that we live according to the passions of the flesh. The NIV uses a word I think is better. It's cravings of the flesh. The word cravings is lust. And I know what pops in our mind when we think of lust. We think sexual sin right away. And yes, it does include it. But lust applies to anything we gotta have, right? Anything we think will satisfy. Anything that bring, brings me ultimate peace or pleasure is pursuing anything Materialism, money, pride, position, achievement, success, man, I'm going to, I want that. Isn't that the way you would describe it? I mean, you might not verbalize it like that, but isn't that the ultimate flaming lust when something else, other than Christ, is what you want? Paul says in these couple of verses that dead people are known for that. Remember, 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 church, who you were, because you were doing that, like everybody else, chasing after the world, and follow him, the devil, and you were all over this cravings of things that you thought would bring you satisfaction. Now, so we've got what dead is. Paul's given us what dead does. Let me give you the last thing that he mentions here, what dead deserves. Verse 3, again, I know this is no fun, no giggles, but we're going to do it because we're going to praise when this is all said and done. He says, verse 3, We were sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, here's the phrase, children of what? Wrath. Man, I wish that wasn't there. That's a scary word. Wrath. It's interesting to me, the phrase that Paul uses there, children of wrath, it's, it's, it says it like this and I think it's true I think it's his, his intent without Jesus God's wrath belongs to us like a child belongs to a parent I've got four sons now they're not, not in my house so therefore kind of sort of not mine now but if you've got little kids you know they belong to you right they're yours they look like you nothing more intimate than your children and Paul uses of all phrases to describe the wrath of God it's yours like your child is yours which defines uh, several things one is as the bible depicts god's wrath it is said that it is eternal in revelation 14 god's wrath for people who don't know christ never ends and let me tell you the it gets worse god's wrath is also very terrible Jesus talking about it in Matthew 13 says that all lawbreakers are gathered and thrown into the fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I have no idea what that is, but that sounds terrible. And yet that's, what, that's the depiction of God's wrath on those that aren't his. And it's deserved. If you want to pick up Romans and get this, the, the details of what we're talking about, Romans 1 lays out the details for us. And it says it's deserved that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Here's why. Because they've denied the truth. They've lied about God. They see it displayed in the heavens, but they say it's not real and it's not him and I'm gonna deny the whole thing. And he says his wrath, his rightful wrath is placed on people who deny him. So God's wrath is right because he is holy. God's wrath is certain because he said it. And let me just give you the best news and we have to end this way because I don't wanna go home depressed. God's wrath has been diverted because of the cross. (laughs) Diverted. Listen to this. Same language, cool conclusion, the Apostle Paul. In you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I picture that, to be honest with you. Like, what if? What if God decided he actually used paper on me? The reams of paper. Yeah, well, he did this, and he did that, and he keeps doing this. And, you know, it would just be overwhelming, the list. But here's what Paul says about this wonderful, amazing affection of God for sinners. He takes this long, ginormous list, and he nails it to the cross of Christ, and the blood of his precious son covers every accusation. Every charge against us is covered in Christ's blood. It's good news. The wrath of God has been diverted for those who know Christ, because it's been diverted to his son. Now, we talk about wrath, and I know there's a reaction to this discussion about sin and wrath, and I actually thought about it when I was writing this out, and I go, this is gonna be no fun at all. Like, no, no fun. And people struggle with God's wrath towards sin. It seems so extreme. And you hear it, I'm I'm certain you might have even said it from time to time. It always sounds something like this. How can a loving God dot 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 dot. Whatever it is, whatever is at the end of that dot, 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 how can a loving God, whatever, how could He punish? How could He possibly punish people forever in a place like that if He's so loving? Well, let me just suggest to you there's so much to say about this, but I'll give you a couple of wrong thoughts that go into that question. One is you are exaggerating man's condition when you say that because you're concluding that man is not that bad. He's only sick. He's not dead. So for God to go full bolt wrath on us when all we need is a little help seems overkill, right? Or second mistake we make is we minimize God's holiness. He's more like us than like him. So if, if he's going to respond to sin, he should respond to sin like I do. And since I'm a sinner, I have all sorts of sympathy to people who are knuckleheads who always trip over their own behavior, and I would totally give a pass. Well, you have totally diminished who he is. He is holy. He cannot look on sin. So when there is sin, there has to be a payment of death. That's what he promised. If you sin, you will die. And there it begins, Genesis 3 on. This whole story is the story of sin and redemption. Neither one of those approaches, by the way, to either exaggerate your own condition or minimize God will ever do anything to fix your condition or remove the curse. Only Jesus. Now, this is where I wish whoever decided the break and where we're going to preach would have given me verse (laughs) 4. Not that I'm bitter. but We need verse 4. Tyler's going to preach this next week, but I love these first two words of verse 4. But God... Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. If you don't get that beautiful picture, this little gory stop between the beauty of chapter 1 and but God, there's no way praise comes out of you. There's no way joy is a part of your expression if all we said was verses 1, 2, and 3, it would be very terrifying and very sad. But we have chapter 1, and we have verse 4, but God. And I believe Paul, when he sat down to write this, wrote it all with one giant thought in mind. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. So he had this little you know, this little rest stop where he goes, Man, I can't believe it because of this was dead. Listen to how Eugene Peterson paraphrases what we've already studied. How blessed is God and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind and settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. And what a pleasure he took in planning all this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We're a free people free of penalties and punishments chalked up by our own misdeeds, and not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, providing everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him everything in the deepest heaven, everything on planet Earth. Amen. Amen. That's why we celebrate these things because that's what we were. Amen, church? That's what we were. Now, I was thinking about you and me after three verses of depravity. I thought, we can't end this way. We've got to say something. We've got to do something. So I asked the worship team to lead us in a response. So l- let me pray. They'll come up and, and uh, we'll set this up. Father in heaven, thank you for a reminder of what we were. How it exposes in technicolor what we are now in Christ. The magnitude of your great love and your great power demonstrated in taking people who were totally dead and at war and unresponsive to you and make us children. So Father, we, we, uh, we say thank you. We love you. We worship you. You are amazing. You're mind-blowing. You're every word we can think of in, in the terms of great... Help us worship you in light of what we were. We pray in Christ's name, amen.